If you have a copy of God's Word, let me encourage you to turn to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 4 is where we're going to start. We're going to look at several different passages in the Gospel of Matthew, and so uh, we're going to begin there. Um, today I want to invite you to, to be on a journey with me. Um, uh, if you've ever been on a, on a journey with me, you know that it's usually um, hazardous and uh, dangerous. And I uh, think of a couple summers ago when Carter and I went up to Oklahoma on a spur of a moment and nearly died in Oklahoma, uh, running out of water in the uh, uh, heat of August, uh, the summer, and uh, doing an overnight backpack trip. Uh, uh, this couple weeks ago, we were in Boston, Vicki and I there, and um, on vacation, and and we were trying to, on the very first night, we were trying to walk to, from the train station to Old North Church where Paul Revere, you know, they had the, hung the lanterns there, one by land, two by sea. And we stopped at this uh, pastry in Boston and got a cannoli. And so we sat down on the sidewalk there and we ate our cannoli and we started walking to the church and our GPS said we're like 200 feet away from the church and Vicki said, Kevin, I think we're going to be late for the train. Let's go back. I said, honey, I think we can make it. She said, Kevin, I've been on a trip with you before. We better go back. I said, so what are we going to do? We're going to say we went to Boston, and we got to 200 feet to the Old North Church, but we had to turn back because we were afraid of missing the train. I listened to my wife, and we turned back. The cannoli was good. The train ride was good. We did get back to the Old North Church another day. But anyway, so I'm saying, I'm trying to invite, I want to invite you this morning on a journey with me. Uh, a journey in this whole area of prayer and fasting. The journey of prayer and fasting. Uh, Richard Foster, in his book, uh, The Celebration of Discipline, begins his chapter on fasting this way. In a culture where the landscape is dotted with shrines to the golden archers and an assortment of pizza temples, fasting seems out of place, out of step with, time, with the times. In his research on the subject matter regarding prayer and fasting, Foster found this. They said that he could not find a single book written between the years of 1861 to 1954, a hundred-year period in church history where not a single book was written on the subject matter of prayer and fasting. The British pastor and uh, preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones, who is now in heaven, echoed the same sentiment in his commentary on Matthew. He said this whole, this whole question of fasting is also, has almost disappeared from our lives and even out of the field of our consideration. And in his questioning, he mused, I wonder if we have ever fasted. And so this morning, I believe that the Lord is leading us to think deeply upon and consider the power of fasting prayer. I share with you uh, the journey, inviting you on a journey. Here's my confession. Uh, one of the occupational hazards of being a preacher of the gospel is being labeled sometimes a hypocrite. Someone who doesn't always practice what they preach. And so I'm here today confessing to you my shame and loss that my practice of fasting at best is reflected by the number of times I have preached on fasting. Infrequent. And so I want this to begin to change in my life and I want to ask you as brothers and sisters in Christ that we would begin to consider this subject and allow the Word of God to begin to change our practice and our view on the subject matter of prayer and fasting. Conversations with our dear brother Jack Watson. He uses the analogy of a swim instructor who, uh, when any of you take swim lessons when you're kids? Only a couple of you? What, you guys just all learn on your own? All right. 
and the swim instructor would say, come, you know, they would keep on backing up to the deeper end of the pool and you'd have to swim out to the deep end of the pool. I believe the Lord is calling us as individual believers and as a church body to the deeper waters of prayer, to the deeper waters of prayer and fasting. When I sensed the Lord uh, leading me to speak on prayer, I had envisioned speaking this Sunday from Isaiah chapter 58 on the fast that God chooses. But as I began my study on Monday morning, this past week, Monday morning, the Lord took me in a completely different direction. And so I stand here before you this morning, brothers and sisters, firmly believing that God has something to say to us regarding the subject matter of prayer and fasting. And I believe today that if we are not only, if we become not only hearers of God's word, but doers of God's word regarding this subject matter, I believe that God has in store for us a blessing far greater than we could ever ask or imagine. And so today, let's consider prayer and fasting. In order to do that, I want to do that in three ways. Number one, what is fasting? Number two, why should I pray and fast? And then number three is our application. How then shall we fast and pray? And so let's begin by just uh, having an understanding of what is uh, fasting. Let's begin with this definition. Uh, not original with me. I believe this is from Martin Lloyd-Jones, the British pastor and preacher. But fasting is abstaining from anything that is legitimate for a spiritual purpose or goal. Fasting is abstaining from anything legitimate for a spiritual purpose or goal. So let's just start with the first line there. Fasting is voluntary, uh, is voluntarily abstaining. I'll come back to that word voluntary later on in the message, but as Christians, we're not commanded to fast in the New Testament. We're not required to fast um, uh, from eating meat on a certain day or we're not required to fast for a season of, uh, of the calendar year. We're not required to fast a certain number of days every year. Fasting is voluntary, but it's voluntarily abstaining from anything legitimate. It's abstaining, voluntarily abstaining from something that is legitimate for a period of time. The most common form of fasting has to do when we think of fasting as abstaining from food, right? How many of you thought of, you think of food when you think of uh, uh, fasting? All right, so a number of you. Right, and so uh, that's the most common f uh, type of fasting, and we're going to consider, that's really where our focus is going to be this morning. But in the New Testament, as I was studying this week, there's other kinds of fastings that are, that are indicated in the New Testament. Uh, there's abstaining from sleep, as we see in Luke chapter 6, verse 12, the night before Jesus called and selected his 12 disciples. He spent the night in prayer. He abstained from, he fasted from sleep. Sometimes we call this watchings or watch night services where believers stay up and pray for a period of the night. Anybody participate in a watch night service? So some of you, looks like some of you that have older, uh, us older folks, right? Uh, the rest of us are all backslidden or something, or maybe we just need to just read. But yeah, I remember as a child growing up, you know, we'd have these watch night prayer services, and I, I think we prayed all night. I'm not sure. Probably some of us slept in the church pews. I'm not sure what happened, but uh, fasting from sleep. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul acknowledged that married couples may abstain from marital relations for a, uh, between husband and wife. 
Abstain from marital relations between husband and wife, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 5. This was to be done for a set time, for a set purpose. Verse 5 says you are to do this so that you might devote yourself to prayer. So fasting is abstaining from anything that is legitimate for a specific spiritual purpose or goal. For a spiritual purpose or goal. On July the 8th, 1741, July 8th, 1741, Jonathan Edwards, in his now famous, uh, preached his now famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. But prior to preaching that sermon on July the 8th, for three days prior to that sermon, Jonathan Edwards fasted from both sleep and food, praying that those who would come to the meeting house um, would hear the, the gospel message. And so for three days, his prayer was simple, bold, and direct. It was just simply, Lord, give me New England. Lord, give me New England. And what happened? What happened when, uh, how did God respond to his prayer with fasting? Eyewitnesses speaking of that Sunday's message sermon said even before he began to speak, spiritual dread and the heaviness of conviction of sin fell upon the audience. He preached and preached until the people in that crowded assembly were moved beyond control. It is said that one man jumped up and said, Mr. Edwards, have mercy. Others are said to have held on to the backs of their pews for fear of falling into the fiery pit of hell itself. And so we talk about fasting, it's abstaining from anything that is legitimate for a spiritual purpose or goal. We're seeking God to work in a, in a miraculous way during this time of prayer and fasting. And so prayer and fasting isn't just for, well, it's my weight loss program, Right? Uh, prayer and fasting isn't just, well, uh, I'm going to cleanse my system. Prayer and fasting isn't, well, it's like a rabbit's foot. I'm going to add fasting to my praying, and maybe that's going to give my prayer more potency with God. It's not that. We fast to see lives changed and bondages broken. We fast so that our relationships and our marriages might be restored and renewed. We fast so that the sick might be healed and the lost might be saved. We fast so that we might draw near to God and experience the presence and the work of God in our lives. Andrew Murray, the Scottish pastor from the 19th century, said this about fasting and prayer. He said, prayer is taking hold of the invisible and fasting is letting go of the visible. So in prayer, we're reaching up, and in fasting, we're letting go. We want to see God do a work among us, and so if fasting is abstaining from something legitimate for a spiritual purpose or goal, why should we fast and pray? Why should we fast and pray? And if, fast, if prayer is taking hold of the invisible and fasting is letting go of the visible, why is it that fasting prayers almost become extinct in the contemporary church? Matthew chapter 4 is where we're going to begin. And I want us to consider this morning in Matthew's gospel, from Matthew's gospel, what Jesus said and did regarding the subject matter of prayer and fasting. And we begin here in chapter 4. And the first statement that I want us to consider this is this. Although voluntary, fasting with prayer is needed. Although voluntary, fasting with prayer is needed. And so before we consider what what Jesus said and did regarding fasting, allow me to, to provide you a quick overview of the subject of fasting in the scriptures. It's not comprehensive, it's not extensive, it's an overview, but it kind of gives us 
a sense of what the scripture has to, the, the big picture sense of what the scripture has to say about fasting and prayer. And so fasting in the Old Testament, let's just begin there. We find that in the Old Testament, fasting was only required by the Old Testament believers, by the nation of Israel in one day. It was the Day of Atonement. On the Day of Atonement, God required, God called his people to a day of fasting prayer in, as they remembered, as they uh, offered their sacrifice for their sin, that burnt offering, that atone, that, uh, the Passover lamb, the, uh, or not the Passover, the, the scapegoat, rather, for the, si- for the sins of the nation. And so you fast forward nearly a thousand years in Israel's history into the time of the exile when the Jews were carried off to their Babylonian captivity. Required one day during the captivity, they began to practice four annual fasts during, uh, in their religious calendar year. Uh, by the time of Jesus, the Pharisees had begun to fast two days a week. Mondays and Thursdays were fasting days. As you take a look at fasting in the Old Testament, notable people in the Old Testament fasted. Moses and Elijah fasted for 40 days each. Hannah, in the barrenness of child, uh, not able to have children, she fasted and God gave to her Samuel. David, when the son that was conceived out of wedlock with Bathsheba had become ill, David fasted for seven days before the child passed. Daniel fasted in prayer while in exile. Ezra, before he led the exiles back to the land that God had given to them, had called the Israelites to fast before they returned to Judah. When Judah was surrounded by an encroaching army, the king Jehoshaphat called the nation of Israel, nation of Judah, to a fast. And so what we find here in the Old Testament, throughout the Old Testament, is that fasting with prayer was commanded, it was expanded upon, but it was also practiced. When we come to the New Testament, we find something a little bit different. We find that fasting is not commanded. We're not commanded by Christ in the Scriptures to fast. There's only a few direct references to fasting, and some might take this brevity on the subject matter of fasting and conclude that fasting and prayer is not that important. And if we draw that conclusion, we're wrong. And if we make that conclusion, we do so to our own loss. I come back to the principle here that we're considering in Matthew chapter 4, although voluntary in that it's not commanded, fasting with prayer is needed. Fasting with prayer is needed. You see, why do you say that, Pastor Kevin? Matthew chapter 4, Jesus began his earthly ministry with fasting. And I believe that Jesus Christ, fasting and prayer, And I believe that Jesus Christ is our example. Matthew's Gospel, look at the first first two verses of chapter 4. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. He was hungry. And following that, it was on the, we're going to see another nuance here. Hold your place here in Matthew chapter 4. Flip over to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 4. I want us to see something here in the Gospel of Luke. But this, the, the, the fasting and the, of Jesus and the temptation of Jesus immediately follows his baptism. When Jesus was baptized there in the Jordan River, uh, the Bible says that the dove representing the Holy Spirit came and arrested upon, uh, rested over him and a voice from heaven was heard saying, this is my beloved son. And we come over to Luke chapter 4, 
Luke offers to us a parallel account and he brings to us a nuance that I want us to think about here this morning of why fasting with prayer is needed. Why fasting with prayer is needed. Look at Luke chapter 4. I want us to consider verses 1 and 2 and then we're going to hop down to verse 14. Notice what it says. It says, Jesus, uh, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days and at the end of them he was hungry. Very similar to what we read in, uh, in Matthew's Gospel. Go down to verse 14. Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 4. And Jesus returned to Galilee. So let's just hold it. Hop back up here to verse 2. Um, so beginning in verse 3 then, you have the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. So he's been praying, fasting for 40 days. He's now hungry. And as the fast comes to an end, the tempter, Satan, comes to tempt him. And he begins at the very point of his need, his hunger, right? Go down to verse 14. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And news about him spread through the whole countryside. Right? I want us to think about this here. What I want you to notice what Luke says. Luke says is that Jesus, being full of the Spirit, was led by the Spirit of the wilderness where he fasted and prayed for 40 days. After the 40 days, he returned to Galilee, not only full of the Spirit, but notice what it said. How, what does it say regarding Jesus and the Holy Spirit in verse 14? Power of the Spirit. Right? Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Holy Spirit. You say, what happened during those 40 days? What happened in the in-between time? What do we know? Well, let's just have a little bit of classroom discussion here. I think the church is a little bit too quiet today, all right? So what do we know? What happened in those, what, what did Jesus do in those 40 days? I've given you a couple of them already. He prayed. Fasted, yeah. Prayed, fasted, what else? He was tempted. And Jesus, did he give in or did he not give in? Not give it, right? He, he obeyed. And so I was thinking about, uh, about this passage this week, meditating upon this, and just asking the Lord, was there something significant here? What is going on here? And as I was meditating, thinking about this passage this week, I had this thought. Prayer, accompanied with fasting, and consecration. Now, we may not use that word a lot today, but... A consecration, being set apart to God. A, a life that is wholly devoted to God, right? Prayer with fasting and consecration leads to, results in revival, right? And by revival, I'm talking here about the manifested power of God, right? We want to see God at work. Now, I think all three of these things are important in the life of the Christian. Prayer with fasting with a consecrated lifestyle, a life that we're not, you know, we're not going to live perfectly, but we're not going to be running headlong into sin, right? Jesus was tempted by the devil. He resisted the devil. He obeyed the Father. He submitted his will to the Father. He used Scripture to refute the temptations of the devil. Consecration. You put all three of those things together, and there was the manifested power of God resting in the life of Jesus. Jesus came, returned to Galilee in the power of God. I like how Ronnie Floyd defined revival. He says, revival is the manifested power of God, where we see God at work. We experience the power of God at work in our lives, in our homes, in our church, in our nation. Ronnie Floyd, in his book on 
the power of prayer and fasting said this. He said, without God's power, we do not have hope. Without God's power, we do not have hope. But through prayer and fasting, we, begin, we can begin to know the power of God like never before. Like never before. When we pray and we fast and we yield our lives wholly to God, we, can begin, to, we begin to experience the power of God at work in our midst. Brothers and sisters, I don't know what your needs are this morning and what your situations you're facing, the challenges that are before you. But I wonder, I wonder if we do not see God at work in our midst is because we do not follow the pattern of Christ. The pattern of prayer and fasting and a life that is consecrated to, to God and to God alone. I think of some of the fasts in the Old Testament. Um, flip back with me to the Old Testament. Let's go back to Second Chronicles. I don't think I put these. I, don't, I didn't put these verses in the in our in the, on the screen there. So if you have your Bibles, turn back with me to Second Chronicles chapter twenty. Second Chronicles chapter twenty. Uh, this here is the the time that the the nation of Judah has been threatened by uh, uh, an army that's coming out of Edom. In 2 Chronicles chapter 3, 2 Chronicles chapter 3, King Jehoshaphat uh, is alarmed. The nation of Judah is alarmed by these armies that are coming against them. And verse 3 of 2 Chronicles chapter 20, we read these words. Alarmed, Jehoshaphat resolved to inquire of the Lord, and he proclaimed a fast for all Judah. And the people of Judah came together, and notice what it says, to seek help from the Lord. Indeed, they came from every town in Judah to seek him. And I think here we get a sense of what fasting is. It's not only seeking help from God, but it's also seeking the Lord himself. And, and then Jehoshaphat speaks and he prays, speaks for the people and he prays to the Lord. And you get down to verse 12 of chapter 20. It says, oh, our God, will Will you not judge them? Will you not judge these nations that are coming against your people? And this is his confession. He says, for we have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. I like that. But our eyes are on you. This is what fasting causes us to do with prayer. It causes us to turn our eyes from the, the situations that are in front of us, the, the obstacles that are overwhelming us, the, the troubles that are just beating us down, and it causes us to lift our eyes and put our eyes on the Lord. And I like verse 13. It says that all the men of Judah with their wives and children and little ones stood there before the Lord. Isn't that a great picture? That all the people of God were together there before the Lord. That's just one place. I think of Ezra chapter 8, verses 21 to 23. I'll just, we'll just throw these in for free. You guys good? We're preaching on fasting, so you're not hungry, are you? I mean, you're not thinking, hey, what time is lunch? I know you're not thinking that, right? So we, we're good all afternoon, right? So Ezra chapter 8, verses 21 to 23. Uh, the, the, God has delivered, uh, has, has caused the heart of the king to, to turn back the decree and, and the exiles that have been gone to Babylon, have, they've been released, right? And so Judah 
has this, this intel, these people that are going to go back to the land, the homeland, right? And they're going from Babylon, modern-day Iraq, across the desert, back to Jerusalem, or back, back, back to Judah, Israel, right? And, uh, and they're gathered there at this river in Babylon, the, Ahav, the river Ahava. I think that's how you pronounce it. I don't know. I should have checked my pronunciation before I got up here. I didn't. All right, here we go. And so I love what Ezra writes in his book. He says, uh, I called a fast, asking the Lord to, for his protection and deliverance because I was too ashamed to ask the king for help because I had already told the king our Lord, our Lord God would deliver us. So here's, the, here's Ezra. He has confidence that God is, he says, listen, we believe God's going to deliver us. God's going to see us through, but we need, before we start on this journey, we need to fast and pray. And so for three days, they fasted and prayed. Fast forward a couple hundred years in Israel's history, maybe a hundred years in Israel's history from the time of Ezra to now Esther. Queen Esther is back in the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians, and she's the wife to King Artaxerxes, right? Haman has his plot, and he has his plot that on a certain day, the decree has already been signed by the king that all the Jews are going to be exterminated. This is going to be a genocide. Mordecai, uh, Esther's uncle, learns about this and hears this, and, and so he sends news to to Esther and says, Esther, you have to do something about this. You have to intervene for your people. Don't think that just because you're the queen that you're going to be spared and you're not going to be killed in this, this holocaust. And she said, what can I do? I can't, I can't just walk into the king's presence. And, 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 and Mordecai says, listen, how do you know that you have not been brought to the throne for a, day, for this, for a purpose like this? And Esther sends back to news to Mordecai and she says, okay, do this. Have, the, have all our people, have all the Jews fast and pray for three days, not eating or drinking anything for three days, entreating God and I will go to the king. And if I die, I'll die, but I will go to the king. And we know how God turned that back, but why did God turn that back? In part because the people of God prayed and fasted. The point is this, is that when the people of God uh, fast and pray, they will see God at work in their midst and God does the miraculous and God does the powerful and he, and he sees that. We, we see Jesus and he began his ministry. What did he do? He, before he started doing anything, he got away with God for 40 days to fast and to pray. Without God's power, we do not have hope. But through in prayer and fasting, we can begin to know the power of God like never before. The need is great, brothers and sisters, the need is great. Let me share with you, uh, um, some, some thoughts that I've just been reflecting on. Uh, Tom Rayner, uh, the former president of Lifeway Christian Resources in 2009, so a decade ago, 10 years ago, was writing, researching, and blogging about the millennial generation. The generation between, born between 1978 and 2000 is the largest generation in the history of our country, larger than the baby boom generation. In <clears throat> Tom Rayner said, this group, think about this, this is 10 years ago, this group of 103 million people will become 40% of the eligible voters in the 2020 presidential election. That's just around the corner. Now listen to what Rayner wrote about this generation. This generation is presently the most lost generation in our history 
as only one out of ten millennials know Jesus personally. Let me just kind of, so while we were in Boston on vacation there, um, reading this book on prayer and fasting at the time, so I got this stuff running through my head. As one of the tours that we took around the city of Boston, um, our tour guide was telling us that the one weekend not to go uh, to Boston is uh, move-in weekend when college students are moving into Boston. 377,000 students move into Boston every fall to go to school. 377,000 students. MIT, Harvard, Yale, Boston College, Boston University, a bunch of other schools there. 377,000 students. And I just began to think about that and ponder over that. Over a four-year period, there's anywhere between five to 600,000 students, different students that are going to school in Boston every year. Now you think about the history of our country, where our country began and the origins. I mean, kind of like where everything started right there, right? Where the Puritans landed and the Mayflower Compact, the Mayflower Compact and all this stuff, right? All the, the heritage and the history, the Christian heritage history. And yet, five, over a four-year period, a half a million or more students go into Boston to learn. These are our future lawyers, educators, scientists, economists, uh, bankers, uh, politicians, whatever, right? Going into Boston, and what do they find when they go to school? Institutions where, by and large, the authority of God's word is no longer accepted, denied. A worldview of professors who antagonistic, hostile to a Christian worldview where um, openness and tolerance and inclusivity to people of other faiths, all religions, lifestyle, sexual preferences is being preached daily. Last weekend when we're at uh, Reagan Keller's wedding and speaking with one of the pastors who um, instrumental in starting the campus ministry that Reagan is serving in, I was talking with him a little bit. I was just kind of sharing with him about, you know, this troubling spirit that I had while I was in Boston and just thinking about the college students there. And, and he said, Kevin, he said, you have 350,000 students that come into the DFW Metroplex every fall. As believers in Christ, as people who name the name of Jesus Christ, we have become conditioned and tolerant of an anemic faith and Christianity. We're okay being religious. And we've settled for not seeing the power of God at work in our midst. Why? In part, because we do not value or practice fasting prayer with a consecrated life. And our loss? What do we miss? the manifested presence and power of God at work in our lives and through our church and in our homes and in our communities. You say, why should we pray and fast? Although voluntary, fasting with prayer is needed. Number two, although misused, fasting with prayer is expected. Although misused, fasting with prayer is expected. In Matthew chapter 6, turn over a few pages there to Matthew chapter 6. 
Um, in his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus corrected the misuse and abuse of fasting by the Pharisees, not by dismissing fasting and saying you don't need a fast, and saying fasting with prayer is a, is a non-essential. Instead, Jesus corrected the misuse and abuse of fasting with prayer by saying that fasting and prayer is expected. Fasting and prayer is expected. Look down to verse 16 of Matthew chapter 6. And so here Jesus is giving his correctives to uh, what was happening there in, among the people of God. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others that they're fasting. Truly, I tell you, you have they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Regarding his teaching on fasting prayer, Martin Luther said this about Christ. It was not Christ's intention to reject or despise fasting. It was his intention to restore proper fasting. And so just as giving to the poor and just as prayer, uh, when it comes to fasting, Jesus said this, don't fast like the Pharisees or don't fast like the hypocrites. Instead, fast like this. Jesus didn't say, well, if you fast, as if fasting was optional. He said, when you fast. That as the people of God, fasting ought to be part of our lives. And so what was his instruction in, in how to fast? What was his corrective? In, in, if, if fasting is expected, is expected, something is expected, what was his corrective to the misuse and to the abuse of fasting? He says fast and pray with sincerity. Fast and pray with sincerity. He said don't fast to, in such a way so that people are going to know that you're fasting. Pray and fast in such a way so that you're heard by God in heaven. Don't fast in a way that lets everybody know that you're fasting. If you, if you fast that way, your reward, you have your reward. People see it, it's done. You won't have an answer from God. Instead, fast and pray in earnestness. Fast and pray in earnestness. Seek an audience with God. Don't seek the approval of people. I, I think back to that, that passage in 2 Chronicles, that passage in 2 Chronicles with King Jehoshaphat has just captivated me this week. God, we're outnumbered. We don't have a chance against this army. We don't even know what to do except to look to you. Fasting with prayer. Fast and pray in earnestness. That's what fasting prayer is. Looking to God and to God alone. Although voluntary, fasting is needed. Although misused, fasting with prayer is is expected, number three. Although dismissed, fasting with prayer is appropriate. Not only is fasting and with prayer needed and expected, it is entirely appropriate for you and I as the people of God to be fasting. Unfortunately, we have dismissed prayer with fasting as a non-essential, unimportant part of our faith response to Jesus Christ. That is the unfortunate part. What we must do is we must be people who fast and pray. Why? Because it is entirely appropriate.
You think about the things that are appropriate in life, right? I come home from work and Vicky's exhausted. And I sit down on the couch and say, Woman, what's for dinner? Right? I can say that because she's not up here. She's upstairs today, right? And then I see the black firing pan fire across the room. <laughs> Fix it yourself, boy. No, that would be inappropriate, right? That would be inappropriate. But as a husband, right, who loves his wife, what would be the appropriate thing to do? Honey, let me come here. Well, let me, tell you what, you sit down. Let me fix dinner for you. Let me serve you. That would be the appropriate response. Now, I want you to notice the analogy that Jesus Christ uses in a response to a question regarding why his disciples did not fast. Matthew chapter 9 in verse 14 and 15. Beginning in verse 14, then John's disciples came, and that's John the Baptist. The disciples of John the Baptist came and asked him, Jesus, how is it that we and the Pharisees fast often? We know that the Pharisees were fasting at least two times a week, but your disciples do not fast. What's up? Why don't they fast? And now notice his answer. Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. Then they will fast. The response of Jesus to the question of the disciples of John the Baptist was both sincere and simple. The simplicity of the answer, the time for fasting is not now. Why? Here's the sincerity. The bridegroom, that is me. That's who I am, Jesus is saying. The bridegroom is here. This is the time for feasting, not fasting. When I'm gone, that will be the time to fast. Christ is the bridegroom. And as the bridegroom of the church, he has ascended to heaven. The church, you and I who have confessed Jesus Christ as our Savior, you and I who have repented of our sin and believed on the Lord Jesus Christ to be the Savior of our lives, we look, we wait, we long for His return, and we are to fast with prayer while we wait. This is the time for prayer and fasting. Fasting with prayer is entirely appropriate for the people of God who are looking for Jesus Christ to come again. I appreciate what John Piper wrote about fasting. He said, Christian fasting, at its root, is, a hunger, is the hunger of a homesickness for God. We're homesick for God. That's why we fast. He said, half of Christian fasting is that our physical appetite is lost because of our homesickness for God is so intense. You ever been homesick and you can't eat? You ever miss one, someone that you love so much that you can't eat? That's what Piper says fasting is. The other half of our Christian fasting, Piper writes, is that our homesickness for God is threatened because our physical appetites are so intense. 
we're so easily satisfied with things other than Jesus Christ. And the things of this world numb us to the things of God. We're like children who have a swimming pool in the backyard, but we choose to play with mud puddles in the front yard. Jesus, in the parable of the sower and the seed, said this in Luke chapter 8. Yeah, I got this verse up there. The seed which fell among the thorns, these are the ones who have heard. And as they go on their way, they are choked with the worries and the riches and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to maturity. The word of God becomes choked out of our lives because of worries and riches and pleasures of life. Mark chapter 4, the same parable. Mark uh, condenses that parable. And he says, and the desires for other things choke the word and it becomes unfruitful in our lives. The pleasures of this life, the desires for other things, these things aren't evil in of themselves. They're not vices. Sometimes it's things like Coffee and gardening and reading and decorating and traveling and investing and watching television, surfing the internet and shopping and exercising and collecting things and talking with people. And all of these things become more important in our lives and our love for Christ. And all of them, Piper writes, can become deadly substitutes for Christ. And so for the person who is longing for a greater intimacy with the Lord Jesus Christ. These words of Jesus regarding prayer and fasting become an invitation to us to seek him and to press into him. What is fasting? Voluntarily abstaining from something legitimate for a spiritual purpose or goal. Why should we fast? Because it's needed, it's expected, it's entirely appropriate for the people of God. So then how then shall we fast? Let me give you a couple, let me share with you just a couple thoughts and we'll be done. Let me ask you three questions this morning. How then shall we fast? What, mount, what immovable mountain, <clears throat> what threat or trouble is before you? What immovable mountain, what threat or trouble is before you? Let's just stop right there, just real quick, where you're sitting, uh, you know, you're, st stay with me for just for a few more minutes, okay? Um, what is before you? What mountain is in front of you? The fear of man? Another fear that so controls you and diminishes your life? What about a besetting sin? Maybe it's a secret addiction to pornography or gambling or another sin. Maybe it's a temper that is uncontrollable and you fly off the handle at the slightest provocation. Maybe today you find yourself believing a life lie. That somewhere along the way you've, 
You've heard the message from the enemy who has whispered, I lied to you and you've believed it as a truth. You're unlovable, you're not wanted, you're a loser, you're unforgivable. No one would want you if they really knew the truth about you and you, you wrestle and you fight this, this life lie. Maybe today it's a financial need or health problem. Maybe it's a broken relationship in your life. Unforgiveness, bitterness has taken root. Maybe today you're suffering in a marriage that seems to be irreparable, unreconcilable. Maybe today you have a loved one who is far away from God. Maybe you have a burden this morning for revival in the church. How then shall we fast? What is before you? Number two, is God calling you to a fast? Are you able to physically fast from food? Medically and physically, are you able to fast? And diabetes, heart conditions, other health conditions may prevent you from fasting physically from food. So is God calling you maybe to another kind of fast? Maybe fasting your evenings instead of television, being alone for the Lord. Is God calling you to a fast? The third question is, will you consider a fast? Maybe assuming that you're able to fast from food, let's just start there. Maybe it's fasting a single meal. I'm, I'm, I'm going to fast a single meal to not to get more work done, but to take that time that I would normally engage in preparing and eating uh, to be alone with God. Maybe it's fasting for a 24-hour period uh, from lunch to lunch. So you basically fast two meals, right? Dinner and breakfast. Maybe a three-day fast or a seven-day fast. We miss, I believe we miss the power of God at work in our lives and in our midst because we have dismissed in part this practice that the people of God throughout the history of time in the Old Testament and the New Testament have practiced seeking God through prayer, fasting, and a consecrated life. And so this morning, the question before each of us is, what is God saying? How will we respond? What will we do? I hope and pray that we will not be hearers of God's word only, but that we will become doers, doers of God's word. And so let's bow our heads, with our heads bowed, let's go, Lord, in prayer. Worship team will come and lead us in a time of prayer, uh, a time of worship. Uh, let's pray together. Father, thank you for uh, speaking to us on this weighty matter. This morning, we confess that, um, I confess that I have not followed you in this practice. I have uh, relegated it to the unimportant, to the non-essentials of the Christian life and, and to my own chagrin have missed on the things that you have for me.
for your people and for your church. I ask, Father, that you would, having spoken to us now from your word on this subject matter, that your, you and your grace would um, enable us not to be just hearers of your word, but also be, to be doers of your word. And so I pray for your help in this. Teach us more on this matter. Help us to heed you. And we ask this all through the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand together. We'll sing our closing song of response. If you need prayer, I'll be here at the front to pray with you and for you.